Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. And we're on the back half of a great SALT Talks doubleheader today after a great SALT Talk this morning uh, with for former Florida Governor Jeb Bush. And we're very excited for this afternoon's SALT Talk as well. Uh, SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we launched during this work from home period uh, with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we're really trying to do during these SALT Talks is replicate the experience that we provided our global SALT conference series, which our guests today attended our most recent international conference in Abu Dhabi in 2019 and was extremely impressive. So we're very excited to have her uh, back on SALT Talks. But what we're really trying to do is provide a platform for what we think are big, important ideas that are shaping the future, as well as to provide our audience a window into the mind of subject matter experts. And we're very excited today to welcome Sarah Kunst to SALT Talks. Uh, Sarah is the founder and managing director uh, of Clio Capital, which is a venture capital firm that she founded. Uh, she's also an investor and an entrepreneur. She's worked at some of the world's leading companies across different sectors, including Apple, Red Bull, Chanel, and uh, previously at Moore Davidow Ventures. She also started her career briefly as a, a scout at Sequoia, uh, one of the leading venture capital firms in the world. In addition to being a contributing editor at Marie Claire Magazine, she previously founded a Los Angeles Dodgers-backed startup called Pro Day and has served as a senior advisor at Bumble, where she focused on their corporate VC arm, uh, the Bumble Fund. She also serves on the board of the Michigan State University Foundation Endowment, and uh, Michigan State is her alma mater. So she, she followed sort of a non-traditional path into venture capital, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, Kunst has been named a future innovator by Vanity Fair, Forbes Magazine 30 Under 30, and a top 25 innovator in tech by Cool Hunting. She has been recognized for her work in Business Insider as a 30 Under 30 woman in tech and a top African-American in tech and PitchBook and top black VC to watch. And she was also honored as a top woman in STEM by Create and Cultivate and Marie Claire Magazine named her a young gun to watch. Uh, she has written for TechCrunch, Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Entrepreneur.com, and Mark Andreessen named her as one of his 59 unknown rock stars in tech, uh, which he came out with a couple years ago. Uh, just a reminder, if you have any questions for Sarah during today's SALT talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And with that, I'll turn it over to Anthony for the interview. Well, I mean, the, the only thing I can think of, Sarah, is I'm so happy that I wasn't competing with you for my spot, spot at Harvard Law School in 1989, okay? My <laughs> resume sucked, okay? I would have never gotten in up against this. I mean, this is incredibly impressive. So Thank congratulations. You. And really honored to have you here. Thank you. So, you know, I'm a little bit of the same mundane, repetitive questions sometimes, but I always find these this part of our talk fascinating. Uh, tell us something about uh, where you grew up, how you got raised, uh, what you were thinking about as a kid, and how you ended up doing what you're doing. Like, what was the process uh, that led you to where you are today? Yeah, well, I mean, like most venture capital investors, my first two jobs were on a farm. Um, so grew up in a town in Michigan of 300 people. And we used to ride our bikes through the irrigation and because we didn't have like fancy backyard pools, which turns out was probably not the best thing since it wasn't exactly organic farming. Um, but I'm still here. My skin didn't fall off. So, you know, came from this tiny town and, uh, you know, always had an eye towards 
you know, I would, I, when I was young, I would just read constantly. I would go to the library and I would just pick an aisle and read my way through it and then read my way through the next aisle and read every magazine I could find. And as soon as somebody gave me the internet, I started, you know, playing around and learning how to code a little bit and was always just deeply curious um, and had parents who were always really supportive of it, but made it clear to me that, you know, hey, we're nice middle-class people. And if you want more, you're going to have to work really hard. Um, and so always grew up with a ton of curiosity and, and a ton of understanding that if I wanted it, I'd have to work for it. So, you know, I did not inherit $400 million from my dad, like your former employer. So I had to start somewhere. Oh, hold on. It was 421 million, I think. No, I'm just kidding. Exactly. I, I know. I, I didn't even inherit the 21 million, right? So so I started there and, you know, I worked at KFC in high school, which I still am trying to get on their board now because I think I'd be the only board member who actually worked there. And, you know, after high school, went to Michigan State and, you know, I started working in tech because I needed to work. So worked at Apple um, as a campus rep. And that sort of opened my eyes to there's a whole business, a marketing side of business. I was an advertising major in the tech industry and the consumer internet was just starting to explode. I remember the day we got Facebook. Um, and so, you know, the, those seeds were laid early, went to New York after college. It was 2008. I worked in marketing at Chanel, which was a great job. I got amazing discounts, but it turns out 2008 was not exactly the right time to be in luxury marketing. Uh, so that didn't work well. And you know, when 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 that sort of uh, started hearing names like Madoff and and you know Bear Stearns falling, uh, it became clear that that luxury was not going to be the place to be. Um, and I jumped over to the tech side. I ended up working for uh, the Winklevoss twins um, at a media startup they had at the time, um, and got to get a really like kind of front row seat to what was going on in the tech world. Um, you know, that was kind of post Facebook lawsuit pre-Bitcoin. I was incredibly early in crypto. I have this, but I did not, did not save or mine nearly enough. Um, but I have an email from 2011 where I said, you know, I'm telling all my Tinder dates about Bitcoin, which is really kind of <laughs> the email of an era. Um, and, and I was in, and once I was in the tech world, I saw how innovative it was, how fast moving, candidly, how fast you could make and lose a bunch of money and, and I was hooked and worked in startups for, you know, several years, ended up as a venture capitalist at a big fund, started a company, raised some money, lost some money. And when I was thinking about what to do next a few years ago, you know, I'd become a, a general or limited partner investing in venture funds at Michigan State University. And I just saw this hole in the market where early stage investors, especially who looked like me, just didn't really exist. And I said, well, I have all this experience. I have a ton of passion for helping founders. Why don't I go start a fund? So I did it. Well, first of all, congratulations. It's an amazing story. And I think it's all, we have a lot of young people that listen to these talks. And I think it's a, a lesson for them that you have to think very boldly and you have to be willing to take on the risks that you've been able to take on. So congratulations for all of that. Before I go to the next question, though, uh, tell me about Bitcoin for a second, your opinion of Bitcoin. What's your opinion? Yes. And, and I'm an old fogey, so I don't really understand it. Okay. We had the Winklevoss twins at our conference. I thought they did a magnificent job of explaining it. But put it in your words, do you like Bitcoin as an investment? Do you see a future for that digital currency? And if so, why? And if not, why not? 
Yeah. I mean, I think if you want to day trade cryptocurrencies, right, you still certainly can. There are other cryptocurrencies that are maybe better than Bitcoin because um, there's more fluctuation. Um, but the reality is that the world is only getting more digital. Um, and, and when you look at sort of, you know, Tyler Winklevoss once described it to me as, you know, Bitcoin is gold with wings, right? So it's, it's sort of the ultimate hedge. It's your ultimate, you know, bug out bag, um, but you can access it from anywhere. And we see that, you know, when you watch the amount of crypto that's been purchased by people in places like China, Venezuela, there's a huge understanding of that. Um, but then the other thing is that as the world gets more digital, as there's less trust in our day to day lives, the ability to have a distributed ledger that allows us, you know, to I don't have to trust you to take money from you because they're sort of the ultimate escrow in crypto, um, if done correctly. And so I think that, you know, will all cash go away and will pe and will all credit go away and will people only use crypto i doubt it in the next 10 20 years but do i think that you know cryptocurrency which far predates bitcoin um is here to stay and has a real relevant place and the blockchain as a distributed ledger and kind of source of truth have a place in our very digital and very kind of fake news world moving forward absolutely i do Okay, well, good to know. I got to do some more homework on it personally. Um, I'm, I'm obviously well behind everybody else. Silicon Valley, Wall Street, not just Silicon Valley and Wall Street, but many areas of our economy struggle with diversity. And it's not just race, it's also gender. So you are a young black woman working in the industry. How hard was it for you to break in? And what was your, what's the experience been like for you? And how do we make it better? We obviously have to make it better. So how are we going to make it better? Yeah, you know, I think that break, getting in wasn't particularly hard, partially because the way I did it was such a side door, right? That it was a little um, Trojan horse-esque. And I won't pretend like that was my master plan. I just... You know, I, I, the website I worked at for the Winklevoss twins that kind of got me into tech was, uh, you know, a nightlife website called Guest of a Guest, right? And so I wasn't, you know, coming into Google saying, I'm going to be your lead engineer. I was a, you know, for years, just kind of a, a PR and, and biz dev girl floating around New York. Um, but the difference is that I would you know, meet these people, be it, you know, Jack Dorsey, Garrett Camp, the Winklevoss twins, you know, some of the early Facebook team, all of these people who went on to become huge tech names. And I wasn't just interested in, you know, going to a party with them. I would literally sit them down and ask them, you know, one of the richest tech billionaires in the world before he became that. I remember one night was trying to hit on me and I said, you know, explain to me what a down round is, right? Which is when you raise a, a round of capital at a lower valuation than the last round. And the poor guy is like, I'm half drunk and trying to hit on this girl and she's making me explain like finance concepts. And it was like five years before I ended up in venture capital. Was he, was he able to explain it half drunk? He did an okay job, but he's also never had a down round. So I guess it's partially that he didn't have the first hand knowledge. For John and I to know this, so I'm going to keep interrupting. Did you give him a Heisman or karate chop him at the Adam's apple? What did you do? I, I, you know, I let him walk me home. I shook his hand good night and I went into my doorman building and said, don't let that man inside. So... All right, good for you. Yeah. Right, good for you. So yeah. you'll be teaching uh, the diversity training and combat exactly. to all the exactly. staff. Exactly. Good for you. I, you know, so for me, that, there was a lot of that to get in. But then once I was in, you know, there was certainly a place, especially when I went out to Silicon Valley, where you really ran into that glass ceiling. And it was clear that if you thought that you had an equal seat at the table, you were wrong. Um, New York historically has been a much better place for female founders. I think it's a better place for diverse founders. But the reality is the real money 
in our industry is in Silicon Valley. And, you know, if, if you've been following along some of the sagas on Twitter recently, um, Silicon Valley is still not great at diversity. And so for me, it was looking at that and saying, you know, nowhere is great at diversity in America. Well, so right. we're going to go into investment banking, be, even female teachers are paid less than male teachers, right? Even though we think of it as a, as a female profession to some extent. So what I decided to do was just sort of figure out a way in and, and, you know, make friends, make allies and, and just keep going. And, you know, I raised a three and a half million dollar venture fund in 2018. That was the second largest first time fund by a black woman VC in America ever. Three and a half million. I'm not like misspeaking. Oh, oh, but right? good for you. And I, I think, I think there's something that you're doing, if you don't mind me saying, and I want you to react to it is you're pushing ahead despite the obstacles. You're not becoming overly sensitized to the obstacles. You, you recognize the injustice of them, but you've got your four-wheel drive moving uh, over them irregardless of them. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's, there's nothing else you can do, right? You can't what am I going to do? Just curl up in a ball and die, right? I, I have to do something to make money. I have to do something to, to build my career. And I still think that out of every industry, you know, tech's one of the only industries where anyone can become a billionaire in five years, right? You, like, you, you can't just pop up from a state school, you know, or a college dropout and go make a bunch of money on Wall Street um, because you, you can't get through the door. There's such a high barrier of credentialism. And so I still think tech is the best place it's just that even the best place in a country like America is still pretty crappy. But, but there's something very admirable about you. This is my observation of your career. When you spoke at SALT and things that you're doing, you don't have a chip on your shoulder. Or at least you don't appear to have a chip on your shoulder. You know, when I, I was told the early part of my career, I'm not going to mention the firm or the name of the person, but they told me that I should be really landscaping their property as opposed to working inside the organization with them. I mean, the person just literally flat out said that to me. And I was probably less emotionally mature than you are, Sarah. And I got upset about that. And it, it really bothered me. And so, um, and of course, I overcame it. And I said, you know what, I got to go start my own business because this way I'll be able to have a better control of my destiny without those biases and, and prejudices. So how have you done that? How have you managed? Because many people... Listen, the, the injustice is there. It's objectively there. Many people get very upset about the injustice. And I'm not saying you're not upset about it, but you seem like you don't have that chip on your shoulder, which I think is a very healthy thing. I wish when I was your age, I didn't have it, frankly. And so how are you doing that? Yeah. You know, one, like, shout out to my therapist. We spend a lot of time on this stuff because it is frustrating, well, right? Tell me, but, we need to get a referral to the therapist. So just remember, <laughs> when the salt talk's over, I want the therapist number. I know I'm not going to get the same therapist, but a comparable one. But go ahead, keep going. I like it. So, so you know, that that's certainly a huge part of it. But I think, you know, I've had this conversation a lot with startup founders, right? And there's a saying in the Black community, and I think other communities, uh, marginalized communities, have the same sort of ethos where you have to be twice as good to get half as much, right? And it's just deeply unfair, right, when you think about that. Um, but the way that I've been flipping it recently when I'm talking to founders, because that is still largely the case, um, is, you know, when you have to be twice as good to get half as much, it means you get to be twice as good, right? And so there is no one, right, you guys know a lot of emerging fund managers, um, 
there are very few emerging fund managers, kind of white dudes who sort of showed up and asked a couple people for money and they got it because they went to the right school or, you know, grew up in the right neighborhood, um, who I would not be happy to go toe to toe with and look at my contacts, my track record, you know, my network, um, what my founders think of me, you know, my, my reach, my, my press presence, all of that stuff. There are very few people that I wouldn't win. Right. And so if if I have been forced to be this good, but I also am this good, like, great, I'm this good. And so to me, you know, constantly being angry about the way the world is doesn't get you nearly as far. And then the last point I'll make is, you know, in history class in like fourth grade or whatever, you have to write a report about the time of history that you would have most liked to live in. For me, it's literally every day, because even with what's going on in our world, our government, our everything, you know, Black women have never had more rights than we have right now, right? We've never had more capital. We've never had more freedom. We've never had more autonomy. We've never had more, you know, potential. And that's on one hand, just deeply sad. But on the other hand, like, how lucky am I that I'm born now and not, you know, 80 years ago? Well, I mean, I'll add something to that, which I think is a very excellent perspective on your part, but you're also a pioneer and a role model for the future, you know? And so, you know, I did a lot of work in the, uh, in the gay community related to marriage equality. And some of the, uh, the people that said to me, yeah, it was rough for me 30 or 40 years ago. It's easier for this generation. Maybe it is or it isn't. I'll let the generation make the comment themselves. But, but the good news is those people felt rewarded by the work that they had done, that they were making it easier for future generations. So, uh, you know, God bless you for all of that. Uh, John is dying to a- ask questions, okay? And I'm trying to Bigfoot John right now. I'm trying to. Push I'm just back. hoping that by the end of this talk, I'm still employed. You know, I I stumble over reading the intro every time we do this show, and Sarah is uh, obviously so intelligent and eloquent that I'm just hoping I don't get fired uh, after we get done well, with this. Salt I mean, talk. You're, not, you, 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 you're not you're not getting fired. I know that's why you have all the sympathy baby pictures up there on the wall. He usually has this really big waspy bookcase that he's trying to impress people with. But now, now we're going with baby pictures. So maybe he does feel like he's getting fired, but don't worry. You're not getting fired. So right. uh, two more questions. Then we're going to turn it over to Mr. Dorsey. Your startup, you know, you, you worked in different stages at like places, Apple, Red Bull, Chanel. How were those companies different? And how are those companies similar? And I'm just wondering about the ethos of a successful business culture. Mm-hmm. Are there elements in each of these businesses, even though they're in very different yeah. Yeah. sides of the economy, are there similarities in these businesses or not? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, so to speak specifically about Apple, Red Bull, Chanel, I worked at all of them by the time I was 24. And, you know, the, there's two kind of common threads, right? Um, Red Bull and Chanel are both largely privately owned um, and not, not necessarily by the original founders, but they're still very tightly held. Um, and then Apple, you know, this was, I, I worked there in college. And so it was sort of, you know, right at the end of the Steve Jobs era. Um, and, and that, you know, while a public company was so driven by his vision um, and the striving, they're not, those companies are, Apple's amazing on margins, you know, really all of them are, are good, solid, fundamental businesses, but they're really marketing machines, right? Chanel is selling you things you can buy a thousand other places, as is, as is Apple, as is Red Bull. The reason that you're choosing them and the reason that they're all category leaders is because they understand something about product and marketing that in, in just a 
drive for excellence in those areas that very few companies either one understand and two are, are willing to to double down on and it's that consistent sort of you know excellence is a practice right and you have to set a bar for yourself that's so high and then you have to you know anything that doesn't meet it you have to reject and, and you can't rest on your laurels and so I think when you look at why and how these companies particularly Chanel and Apple have managed to continue to just so outperform their peers right a friend of mine said you know retails in a free fall with COVID and Chanel increased their their handbag prices by $1,500 because they do that every year so the best time to buy a Chanel bag is always today because next year it's going to be you know the prices only go higher and they can do that because of the excellence and because of the brand integrity and so it a hundred percent uh, sort of shaped the way that I view the importance of brand and legacy and reputation and integrity because if you have those as a company, um, you can keep thriving even when nobody else is. And if you don't, um, as soon as there's a downturn or a hiccup, you're you're going to be done for. Makes total sense to me. I think I think it's it's, it's again another insight. Uh, somebody down in their dumps, they got fired from a job. Let's say they said something stupid on the job and they got unceremoniously fired after like 11 days, maybe something like that. Okay. Mm -hmm. What would you recommend to that person down in the dumps uh, that's been blown out of a situation? You know, I used to be the queen of trying to fix things, right? Like something would go wrong. I'm like, how do we fix it? How do we salvage it? How do we fix it? And now I generally have, it's almost like falling knives, right? Should you try to catch a falling knife? Like, no, right. You'll end up stabbed. You'll let it fall. And so, you know, I remind myself of this consistently when things fall apart, let them fall. And that's not everything, right? That's not, you know, I'm never going to pay rent again, whatever. That's if you're doing your best and you're showing up and you're putting kind of goodwill and good faith into something and it's still not working and you, you do kind of the reasonable amount of work to make it work and it just won't work, then like stop and consider that maybe you let it fall apart and then the next thing, the next act, the next whatever is going to be 10 times better. And, you know, I think we intrinsically know this in like maybe our dating relationships, right? How many of us have spent way too long and then you're like, oh my God, I should have dumped that person a long time ago when they first did X and I'm so much happier with the new person. But we don't always translate that into our work lives or, you know, even things like with COVID. If you're trying to salvage the before, if you guys were trying to pack us all into, you know, an Abu Dhabi conference room right now, this wouldn't work nearly as well as the talk series, which has maybe opened up a whole new way to reach people. I agree. So your, 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 your message is try to go with the flow and uh, evolve as you go. Don't, don't, yeah. don't, don't worry about the fall. I think it's a good message. Okay, so I'm gonna turn it over to Mr. Darcy. Uh, go ahead, John, we've got tons of questions for you and it's really great to have you on, Sarah. Thank you, great to chat. So Sarah, you worked uh, as a scout at Sequoia briefly and you uh, worked for a couple other venture capital firms. First of all, for people on the call who might not be familiar with, with the role of a scout in Silicon Valley, could you explain what that means? And then also, I know during the pandemic, it's very interesting, we talked about this in our, our pre-call the other day, you started a fellowship program for people who have been laid off yeah. uh, during the pandemic, which I think is ingenious because what you have is so many talented people that have been laid off because of things purely out of their control. But you know, if you're a company looking to hire tech talent right now, it's actually a great time to be hiring because of all these talented people who are now out there on the street. 
talk about what you did with that fellowship and what motivated you to do that uh, after you just explained to people what a scout does. Yeah, so scout investing is an esoteric little area of venture investing. Um, and it started uh, kind of like 2008, 2009, um, when you know Facebook blew onto the scene. And if you were in college then, or you were kind of like right around that like 17 to 23 year old age range in the call of 2005, you were very aware of Facebook. If you weren't, you had no idea that it existed. And if you've seen the movie, The Social Network, you know you kind of see some of that play out where all these big venture funds are like, wait, what is this thing? And by the time they knew about it, you know, in in an ideal world as a VC, you own maybe 20% of a company at the first round of funding. And and you want to buy that for maybe like a half a million, a million bucks. If the company is grown to millions of users, then that same five, that same percent of the company is going to cost you, you know, astronomically more. And so scout investing came out of the insight that the rise of the consumer internet meant that VCs couldn't see every single company on day one anymore or day zero. And, but that because they invested in all these startups, they had this long tail of people who weren't yet personally liquid, right? They're not rich, they're coming out of college, they're joining a startup, they're making a little bit of money, but they have this massive network and they know which of their really smart friends are starting companies and going to work for companies. And so scout investing is basically angel investing on somebody else's dime. So when I was a scout at Sequoia, I was investing I was angel investing, right? Just like many of you might. The difference is I hadn't worked in finance first, so I couldn't just go into my bank account. I was going into Sequoia's bank account, which is much bigger, so it's much better. But, um, you know, that's what scout investing is. And they've, it, over the life of since scout investing has been introduced, there's been amazing returns. Um, Jason Calacanis, who's a, a pretty high profile angel investor, you know, he invested in Uber and Twitter through a scout vehicle. So it wasn't his own capital. He was making a little bit on the back end once the money came back. But you know, those early dollars that that turned into, in the case of Uber, a 50,000x return, right? A lot of that ended up going to Sequoia. Um, and so it's a great deal for Sequoia. And it's a great deal for Jason because, you know, investing other people's money when you don't have any is far better than not investing at all. Um, and, and so I was a part of Sequoia's program and loved it so much that it's even a part of my fund now. Fantastic. And talk about Chrysalis for a minute. So I thought that was a, a brilliant idea to take all of this great tech talent that has been laid off as a result of the pandemic, again, because of things beyond their control and bring them all together to help incubate new startups and to help you know each other find new jobs and things like that. Talk about that program, why you launched it, what the result was, and, and what it taught you about the industry. Yeah. So, um, you know, I remember in 2008, um, you know, early 2009, like just the world all of a sudden fell apart, right? New grad working and all of a sudden, you know, my friends who hadn't yet gotten jobs, there were no jobs to be had. And, you know, people who worked at companies, they were downsizing. And, you know, when I went to switch jobs, the landscape could not have been more different than when I would intern in New York in 2006 and like money grew on trees, right? And so seeing that, I ended up at a startup and I ended up at a startup partially because the bigger obvious companies to move to weren't hiring. Right. And I'm so happy that I ended up on that path instead of saying, Hey, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of done at Chanel. Maybe I'll go to Louis Vuitton and then just being on this other roller coaster that, that took me in a very fancy, but totally different direction that I don't think was the right path. So fast forward, you know, to this spring, 
when in one month tech lost like 30,000 jobs, right? So companies like Lyft, Airbnb, there's layoffs everywhere, there's hiring freezes, it, you know, sales teams for almost everybody were just slashed. And it reminded me so much of that 2008 moment. And some of the world's richest venture capitalists would go on Twitter and say, okay, it's time to build. And then everyone's like, great, what do we build? How? And they're like, I don't know, I'm on my yacht. Like, it's time to build, you go figure it out. And I looked at that and I was like, I don't have a yacht yet, but I know how to build and I know how to hold space for people to come together. And I know how it feels to be like, oh my gosh, my entire you know plan, my entire life, my salary, everything just got blown up. What does this mean about me? Not understanding that it has nothing to do with you and it has everything to do with macro, you know, economic circumstances far outside of your control. And so I thought, you know, I can't give these people money. I can't fix a pandemic, right? But what I can do is create a space. We largely use Slack and we created a space and, you know, TechCrunch wrote about us. We had, you know, hundreds of applicants. We ended up accepting a few over a hundred people. We had everybody from, you know, a CFO of a publicly traded company um, to, to literal rocket science PhDs, um, tons of tech workers um, across all different disciplines, all different geographies. We had people, you know, from Israel. We had people, tons of people from America, people from all over the world. And so we all came together. And I said, okay, guys, you got to just start generating ideas because these are all people who were deeply successful in their careers. Um, and, and they were great at building startups for maybe like Series A on. But that zero to one, right, that ideas phase, it's not hard to do well, but if you've never had to do it before, then you just truly don't understand it. So we literally, I just made them start using their idea muscle every day without fail. You had to log into Slack and share five ideas. They could be terrible ideas, right? They could be great ideas. They could have something to do with tech. They could have nothing to do with tech. You just had to start throwing out ideas and talking with other people about ideas. Then after a couple of weeks, you know, they started to spend more time with each other, um, you know, chatting, getting to know people, you know, doing little calls around ideas and teams started to form. And then we took them through, you know, the Google kind of sprint process, design sprint of, you know, bringing an idea into the world quickly. Um, they started testing ideas. By the end of the six week program, we had over 20 projects that had been started over 10 of them are actual companies. They're C-Corps, they're incorporated. Um, we've had multiple companies get into accelerators. Um, we've had a lot of people get jobs through networking in the program. Some who've gone into venture capital now themselves. Um, and you know, we have people who are earning money and, and revenue for their companies. And these are all people who came into the program with no thought in their mind, March 1st, or even you know, March 31st um, of 2020, that they were going to get laid off and become a startup founder. Well, that's incredible. Um, you know, it, it's great to hear. It's something that we try to do at Salt as well is is make mutual introductions and, and to incubate the type of, you know, idea generation that you did in such a short time uh, post pandemic. And congratulations on on building that out so quickly. I want to talk about investment trends for a minute. And you know, your fund Clio Capital, you're invested, I think, in in twenty plus different startups. What types of investment themes were you focused on uh, pre-pandemic? Do you still believe in all of those themes? And are there any new themes or acceleration of different trends that you've identified as a result of the pandemic that you're particularly excited about putting money to work in those uh, channels? You know, um, Aaron Levy from Box is, is one of my investors. And he said on Twitter, and I deeply agree with it, that, you know, what we're seeing right now um, it, during COVID 
is the acceleration of like seven years worth of digital transformation for companies happen in a number of months, right? And, you know, will there ever be offices again? Of course there will be. Will the pandemic end? They all do eventually, right? But will we ever, you know, will it ever be okay to say, no, you can't call in on video for this, even if you have a really good reason to? No, you can't possibly do this job remote, right? No, the only way we can get work done is by all being in person 40 or 60 hours a week. I think those days are over. And, you know, when you think about it, right, how, what, what are work hours, nine to five? Why is it eight hours? Well, because there's 24 hours in the day and Henry Ford needed three shifts to make Model Ts around the clock. That was like 1905, right? So now we're 105 years later and some random guy's random idea to maximize, you know, output of factories is still what governs our day-to-day, -day, you know, the majority of our lives, right? And so I think that acceleration um, is somewhat permanent. I think that very few investors, venture investors, are investing in companies now that are strictly around COVID because, you know, pandemics don't last forever. Companies, I invest at pre-seed, right? Which means that most of my companies are at least 10 years away from selling or IPOing. They're maybe only a few years away from going public via a SPAC, but we're still, you know, not there. And so the idea that I want to invest in companies that are building for the moment instead of building for, you know, the next decade is just not going to be accurate. Um, so, you know, that being said, I think the the other sort of pandemic in this country that's come into stark relief this year of racism and social injustice has also accelerated, you know, some trends where people are saying, hey, you know, AI, we, we, it's always a joke every like year or so, some new fancy organization releases a, a, an AI bot on the internet and says, hey, you know, the Twitter's going to train it. Within like 24 hours, the bot is basically like a deeply racist, sexist, homicidal maniac. And that is without fail. Because when you just learn from Twitter or when you just learn from people in, in, in the world, right, you realize the lowest common denominator is really low. So is a company that does AI for good, right, suddenly feel more relevant, right, post the protest this summer? Yeah, I think so. But it was always relevant. It's just that nobody was focused on that, right? Does a does a bot for pandemic detection is that going to be interesting? If it also works for other, you know, social health issues, public health issues, sure. If it literally only works for the very specific strain of SARS-CoV-2, then that's probably not going to be very relevant in even three or four years. So I want to talk about seed stage investing for a little bit. You know. Late stage venture investing, growth capital is, I wouldn't say straightforward, but you have a data set, you have a company history to go off of, and, and you can do it in a, in a more robotic way in terms of identifying companies that are still private, but have, have basically shown a promise that they're going to be a successful company. Seed stage investing, there's a lot more art to it, uh, I, I would guess, than there is science, where you're having to identify certain character traits and founders, you're having to evaluate different ideas. What are the prevailing characteristics that you look for in companies and in people that you're investing in at a very early stage? You know, you're absolutely right. You know, with a later stage company, you're sort of looking at historical performance and guessing that the future results are going to hold relatively, right? Um, and it's, it's almost more like private equity at a really early stage. Um, with startups, you are, it's basically like going into a hospital nursery and looking at babies and guessing which ones are gonna be, you know, successful adults, right? And so uh, 
it is a lot more nebulous. And when you think about that analogy, um, you know, what you want to know is less about the baby's height or weight or whatever, right? Responsiveness to light. What you want to know is what are the baby's parents like? What, what environment is this baby going to be raised in? Right. And it's kind of the same with startups where you're looking around saying, um, you know, is this founder coachable? Who else is on the team? What does the market look like? Who have they found to get around them as advisors? Um, how do they, you know, it's a lot of kind of blue sky questions and sort of feeling through, is this founder going to be responsive when a pandemic hits, when a new legislation hits, when, you know, Google decides to get into their space, or are they going to be super dogmatic and say, you know, here's the path, I'm following the path no matter what, and you're like, okay, but the bridge ahead of you is out. So are you sure you don't want to take a different path? You're going to fall through. And they're like, no, no, I'm good. This is the path, right? So I look for kind of I would say a lot of like neuroplasticity, right? I want people who are learners, who take advice, who take other people's opinions, who think fast, who are nimble. Um, and for me, that also means, you know, we know that diversity drives better results. So I also want to see a diverse team. And that doesn't mean 10 people who look like me around a table. It means, you know, a diverse team because they're going to be able to see around corners a lot better if everybody has a slightly different perspective on where the corner is. So we have a, a question from one of our viewers about scouting. So a lot of what you described as scouting is that as a young person or somebody from a, a unique background, you might have special insights into different companies that are being launched that might not be on the radar of the top tier private equity for or venture capital firms. Um, our question is about international scouting. So you, know, you, you came to Salt Abu Dhabi in 2019. You were at Milk in Abu Dhabi as well. Um, and I know you attend a lot of events and you speak at a lot of events and you're obviously a great speaker. What do you see as the opportunity internationally uh, in terms of scouting startups? Do you see sort of a, uh, a rise in entrepreneurship and some markets that aren't traditional hubs for entrepreneurship, whether it be in Africa, the Middle East, Asia? And, and uh, are you looking to get involved in any of those markets? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, you'd have to really not be able to read the tea leaves. You'd have to have never gone to a world history class in your life to think that Silicon Valley will always be the hub of innovation. We also know, if we're being totally honest with ourselves, even our president knows that, you know, China is sort of the, the new hub of innovation right now. Silicon Valley still has a massive edge, um, but but there, there's a lot more neck and neck there, right? And very few startups, very few unicorns, right? in Silicon Valley, China, or anywhere else in the world aren't getting a ton of their engineering talent from India, from Russia, from you know, former USSR countries, right? And so there is innovation everywhere. You know, Estonia is a country of like three million people, and most of you couldn't like find it on a map if I gave you a hundred bucks, right? But you know, Skype came out of there, and and now it's this massive powerhouse. They have the most advanced digital government in the world, right? So innovation, you know, this is not. I am not at all the person who coined this, but you know. Um, talent is equally distributed, opportunities aren't. And I think that the same way, John, you and I kind of came up in an era where, you know, maybe for our parents' generation, the idea that China would be an economic powerhouse was crazy. But then for us, it feels weird to think that that wasn't always the case. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, our children and certainly our grandchildren someday are going to be like, what do you guys mean you didn't think that Africa was gonna be a massive powerhouse, right? What right. do you mean you didn't think the Middle East would be a massive powerhouse? When you look at the populations of the world, you know, 
a lot of Asia is is aging out, right? And a lot of Europe, that the average age is getting a lot younger. Meanwhile, in places like Turkey, you know, you have the majority of the population is under the age of 25. And in most of Africa, that's the case, right? And so there's so much more, one, just more people and more ability to innovate because, you know, the, the smartphone penetration in the U.S., right, is so high, but you can go to countries where they're like just getting started with those things. And so, you know, there is a worldwide sort of, I think, moment that we are quickly moving towards just a lot more innovation. Um, and I think that if you are not aggressively looking at your strategy to get, you know, allocations to get capital in some of those markets and to fund people from those markets and to help support people who've sort of come here for education or jobs like boomerang back and start companies there, wherever there is, um, you are missing the boat by so far. And it's not a boat. It's like the fanciest yacht in the world because this will be the trillion dollar opportunity right in the next 20 years. And as I think I've said before, I really like yachts. There you go. I think, you know, you, you do these uh, long-term seed stage investments. So I'm, I'm timing it out as price like six or seven years until you have your yacht. I'll, yeah, I'll be calling no, you around then. More than five years from being a billionaire in my industry. There you go. So uh, I wish you'd told me about Bitcoin in, in, in 2011 on Tinder. Well, where were you uh, on Tinder? You take the, Don't let your you take the pictures down and <laughs> give it up and go join Sarah. Okay, I can see where you, this is going, Darcy. Exactly. Maybe. But, you know, on that theme of international entrepreneurship and technology development, we have an interesting SALT talk coming up in a couple of weeks uh, with a guy named David Halpert. His, his fund is called Prince Street. But he coined this term called digital decolonization, where it's basically the idea that all of these countries, rather than allowing Google and Facebook and Apple to come in and swallow their tech industries domestically, there's sort of a tech nationalism that's on the rise where these governments are looking to you know, provide a platform for companies domestically to be successful. And so Google, for example, just bought a large stake for many billions of dollars in Reliance Industries uh, in India is an example of that. Um, and it'll be fascinating, you know, you and I have traveled a lot internationally and, and it's just so exciting to do our SALT conferences abroad and to travel and talk to people in these different places because like you said, the demographics in places like Southeast Asia are exploding in a very positive way. And, and like in 20 years, like you said, uh, looking back at some of these things, it's gonna seem obvious, uh, but you know, right now people aren't necessarily as focused on it as they should be. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And you know, my my thought, right, if, if I were sort of uh, talking to some of these countries concerned about the, the digital decolonization issue, you know, and, and I think that India and China have provided a pretty good groundwork for this. I think that there's something to be said for letting these big companies come in and train your workforces and build up connectivity and um, sort of uh, get people to understand, right, that you always want to learn on somebody else's dime, right? The startup work I did for the Winklevoss twins was probably some of the worst sloppiest work I'll do in my life. Sorry, Cameron and Tyler, because I was 23 and learning, right? And I would have much rather learned on their dime than learning now, right? When I'm having to run my own shop and pay myself my own salary. So, you know, I, I think some of that happens in this digital decolonization where these countries are hopefully letting these companies in, really learning from them, but, but keeping an escape hatch, right? So that they can also say, you know, Marie Kondo style, thank you for your service. You no longer bring me joy. Goodbye. We're going to start our own whatever it is. All right. Well, Sarah, it's been a pleasure having you on. Anthony, do you have a final word for Sarah? 
I, if I so ever, you're, not, get you're fired, ready to replace me now. Uh, no, 15 minutes I'm just later, say to her, if I ever get fired again, because anything can happen in my life, I'm calling you for the re- referral to a therapist. <laughs> I'm going to ask you for a job, Sarah. What else can I right. do in a situation like this? Right. You right. have an amazing so be my Say it again. You can always come be my intern. Okay, great. I would look forward to that. Okay, at some, time, at some point, that may even be a better job than what I got now. So you never know. You never know how, what's going to happen, Sarah. But I want to congratulate you on what you're doing and your courage. Uh, but more than anything, I want to congratulate you on your attitude and your spirit. And so may that take you as far as you want to go, Sarah. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.